tourism in Burma and what's happening in Egypt. Until then, good morning. Excess Baggage was presented by John McCarthy and produced by Harry Parker. And you'll find some related web links on the Radio 4 website, as well as information about the podcast and the archive. It's all at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4. Just go to the Excess Baggage page. Why did the first ever biopic of a living Prime Minister never make it to the screen? Steve Punt investigates in a moment. Intrusion by the state mafia. It is something that happens extra-legally. Governments around the world are hacking into computers. We have cases of bloggers who went to jail and tortured, for sure. Pro-democracy campaigners in the Middle East and criminals near a home are being snooped on. It was decided that they would gain access to the property and would leave something on the computer that would report back. BBC Radio 4 looks at the extent and the legality of state hacking. File on 4 on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. Now, on BBC Radio 4, Steve Punt turns gumshoe once again as he tracks a tale of political intrigue involving a Prime Minister, a reel of film and a rather large sum of hush money. It's another case for Punt P.I. This is Punt to Private Eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, Tracy, need you to get yourself to Aberystwyth post-haste. Do some digging on a movie about David Lloyd George. The film vanished just after the Great War. Suppressed, apparently. Sinister one. The dossier awaits you on the train. You'll have plenty of time to read it. (laughs) Oh, one word of advice, Punt. Follow the money. Follow the money? Tracy had gone all deep throat on me. And there was something in his tone I didn't like. What was I getting mixed up in? A political thriller, a suppressed film from the silent era, but a story very far from black and white. My trail began at a station ticket office. Return ticket to Aberystwyth, please. This was no ordinary political thriller. It was a political thriller... Via Birmingham. Via Birmingham. And Tracy wasn't wrong when he said I'd have plenty of time to read the dossier. And how long does it take? It's four and a half hours. But why was I being sent to Aberystwyth? There we go, 4043, Birmingham. All I knew was that it was something to do with Lloyd George. I felt the hand of history on my shoulder. As the express train sped out of the platform, I was being carried back in time to the heyday of Britain's great wartime leader. An unintermittent and untiring drive all along the line of victory right to the end. I arrived in Birmingham and it was time for the second and less express-style leg of the journey. Uh, ah, Wolverhampton, Telford, Wellington, Shrewsbury, Welshpool, Newtown and then a series of names I can't pronounce and Aberystwyth. Platform one. Settling into my seat, gratefully clutching a cup of milky tea, I opened the crucial dossier Tracy had compiled for me. Briefing note from Tracy. The I learned that in 1918, a film company called Ideal produced a two-and-a-half-hour silent movie of the life of David Lloyd George. It was ambitious in scope, epic in scale, and set for release later in the year, but never made it to the silver screen. That's very intriguing. 
And here was the best bit. The reason it never made it was that two lawyers appeared at the offices of the film company, handed over £20,000 in £1,000 notes, and took the film away. That sounds suspicious. The, the question was, very who sent them? The film then dissolved to black. Would there ever be a second reel? This mysterious intermission continued for almost 80 years until the film faded back up into history. It's now kept in the National Library of Wales in, wait for it, Aberystwyth, just four and a half scenic hours away. Someone really needs to get to the bottom of this. And seeing as how I'm nearly in Aberystwyth, that someone might as well be me. Right, here we are. Oh, fresh air. Sea air. Very nice. Now all I have to do is find a mysterious long-lost film. With my mission now clear, I headed for the National Library of Wales. Could you take us to the uh, the National Library, please? Thank you very much. That's where the excitement is. That's where the excitement is today. Sarcastic cabbies are all in a day's work in this business. I stayed tight-lipped about my mission. You can't be too careful when it comes to political conspiracies. I'd been told my contact was John Reed uh, please ring for attention. at the National Screen and Sound Archive of Wales, housed within the National Library. Welcome to Aberystwyth. John took me through corridors and doors that led to more doors and corridors that eventually took me to a projection room. The film began its second act when Lloyd George's grandson, Lord Tenby, was sorting through some old films he stored at his home. Among the 16mm newsreels and home movies were what Lord Tenby described as some big tins. And we said, what do you mean by big tins? And he said, well, they're bigger than the 16 millimetres. We said, well, uh, how long have these tins been here? He said, well, I think they've been in my attic for about 40 years, and they were probably in Grandad's attic for that sort of length of time. And we said, you realise that these could be 35 millimetre cinema films, and in that era... They produce 35mm cinema film on cellulose nitrate, which is highly inflammable, highly explosive. We suggest that if you really want to be safe and make sure your house doesn't go up in flames, you get it out of the attic and somewhere cooler and safer. John took charge of the big tins and started to examine their flammable contents. And I thought, what is this? And then I looked closer and I thought, this is costume drama. Well, what on earth has Lord Tenby got 35mm negative costume drama in his attic for. Further investigation revealed that it was the lost film, the life story of David Lloyd George. It would have been the first, or as far as we know, the first time a living politician had been portrayed in a biopic during his lifetime. Do we know what the motivation was for, for suppressing the film? I don't know. No one knows what the real reason is. What is also amazing is that so few people mention it once the film has disappeared. Why? Yes, so that £20,000 seems to have spoken quite loudly. Very. And um, one wonders if there wasn't other pressure. It's almost as if there's a D-notice on it. A D-notice? An official gag for reasons of national security? This talk of other pressures was making me jumpy. What lay in these reels that someone had paid £20,000 to silence? even though it was already silent. It was time to see the film for myself. Use this lift. Just... You wash your hands. Uh, yes. 
that door will take your fingers off. Danger at every turn. The film, still in big, although different, tins, was kept down in the bowels of the building in carefully controlled conditions. We'd need to take eight cans up to the projection room to screen the film. What celluloid secrets were stored within? What had so worried the censors that they shouted cut before the film was even released? Mild peril, moderate violence, scenes of a sexual nature. Maybe this movie wasn't just black and white. Bits of it were blue. As John took the reels back to the projection room, I headed for the screening theatre, where Yola Baines, former head of the archive, was my date for this intriguing uh, matinee. Right, so I have a, a, a comfy seat uh, in the middle of the auditorium. Despite um, the comfy seat, I needed uh, to keep my mind on the case. Oh. I had some penetrating questions for Yola. Oh, oh, hang on, what certificate is it? Oh, God. <laughs> it's a you. Oh, that's all right. She also told me there was no popcorn. Okay. Right, so lights are down. Behind the scenes, John was carefully preparing for our viewing of this 93-year-old cause celebra. And then we lace the projector. What vintage video nasties lay ahead? titles The Life Story of David Lloyd George Nothing too sensational so far A series of scenes cover Lloyd George's humble beginnings and the start of his political career Maiden speech in the Commons June 13th, 1890 yeah, They're definitely reacting, aren't they? He's got their attention Yola and I had the cinema to ourselves. He's got an impressive pipe for there on the go. Which was just as well, because we talked all the way through the film. Torchlit procession. Torchlit procession. Down the streets of Canal. And there's hundreds of hundreds of people. Hundreds of people. It soon became clear that the production was a large and expensive undertaking. Not exactly Pirates of the Caribbean, but a crowd pleaser nonetheless and considerably more historical. Uh, the dark days of the South African War. Including one infamous mass meeting. Historic meeting held in the Town Hall, Birmingham. Wow. There's a complete There's a riot massive inside. Riot going on. Chairs being thrown. 10,000 extras in this scene. Lloyd George, in fine silent movie style, escapes the melee in a suitably filmic, although apparently accurate way. So, what they're going to do here is they're going to smuggle him out of this riot. Uh by disguising him as a policeman. Clearly, the man had enemies. Maybe this film was banned at the behest of an angry Brummy. Other possible suspects appeared to be supporters of the Boer War or campaigners for electoral reform. So George has just got out of this car, on top of which we've got a couple of suffragettes. All potential suspects for my investigation. Lumbered onto the top of the vehicle. And then, of course, the culmination. His role as wartime leader. Here comes a German in a very Little big helmet. Building smoke. They're fleeing with refugees running away Wow. Now that's um, that's hundreds of yards of trench. He's actually in a trench now. Lord George is in a trench in France. Right on the front line. And then, at the climax of the film, a further puzzle as to the movie's fate. A kind of victory. So this Parade. is a Look at this. Look at, look, look at the car containing... This is the real Lloyd George. 
We're quite sure of that. This is a highly significant moment. Oh, that yes. is most definitely Lloyd George himself. That is no actor. That, that's Lloyd George. The man. Lloyd George himself had a cameo part in the film. Very Hitchcockian. This suggests he must have cooperated and approved of the project. Did he suddenly change his mind? Or were there other forces at work? I needed to know more about Lloyd George's political circumstances around this period. I knew from the film that he'd been Prime Minister of a coalition government, but how exactly had this come about? Former Deputy Labour leader Lord Hattersley has written a biography of Lloyd George. The coalition started in 1916, his coalition. There'd been a coalition before that, led by Asquith, but that had been a proper coalition, a coalition of Liberals and Tories. 1916, December 1916, Lloyd George thinks we're losing the war and is convinced that Asquith has to go. He therefore manoeuvres Asquith's removal, takes over the premiership himself, and most of the Liberals refuse to serve in his government. He's therefore in a strange situation of being a Liberal Prime Minister, leading what amounts to a Conservative Party government. Ah, another set of enemies to add to the list. This was interesting. Even as the war ended in success, perhaps behind the scenes political shenanigans were afoot. Maybe Lloyd George had enemies in Westminster who wanted to scotch this immortalising of his life for the masses. Tories who resented him or disgruntled liberals. What was his personal political standing in 1918? After the 11th of November, the armistice, he is proclaimed as the man who won the war. So this is the moment when Lloyd George is probably more popular than any prime minister or perhaps any politician in British history. That we were fighting not merely for victory over our enemies. Certainly more popular than Winston Churchill was in 1945. He comes to the House of Commons, he announces the armistice. We proceeded with our task of winning that victory which alone could enable us to vindicate those principles. Asquith is deposed opponent is the first man to stand on his feet and applaud. The entire House of Commons applauds as he walks out of the chamber to go to a Thanksgiving service in St Margaret's. I mean, he is the hero to end all heroes at that moment. He is king. Hmm. With that in mind, it was difficult to see how it could have been political rivalries that accounted for the film's disappearance. I can't understand what the cause of suppression was. Certainly the Tories wanted to support him. They are all saying to each other that Lloyd George is essential for the Tory party's success. So the Tories want to support him, to boost him, to increase his popularity, perhaps more than the Liberals. The only people who are really against him are the hard Asquithites. And there's about 20 of them effectively in the House of Commons who count. And they're bitterly against him. But it's hard to believe that these 20 dissident Liberal MPs are influential enough or, I suppose, rich enough to organise the suppression. It didn't add up. Party politics just didn't seem to explain why the film had vanished so mysteriously. Then, a breakthrough. Word of an unpublished memoir by one of the bosses of the ideal film company, Harry Rosen. Yes, it says, for days after the conclusion of this Lloyd George matter, the directors hardly said a word to each other. What shook us all was not the overriding disappointment, but the humiliation. This crucial piece of evidence was discovered by Professor Sarah Street of Bristol University. According to the Rosen memoir, Captain Guest, who was the government chief whip at the time, informed the ideal company that Lloyd George didn't want the film to be released. So, 
was the fatal blow delivered by Captain Guest in the billiard room at the Ideal Film Company. Before I put the cards on the table, I needed to know more about where his orders came from. So, hold on, if I could, can I just um, just establish that? There is a, a record that Lloyd George himself said he didn't want the film released. Yes, uh, it's in the memoir. So there isn't a document that says from Lloyd George saying, I don't want the film released. This was just the report that Rowson got, that this was the instruction from the government chief whip. So when um, did Rowson write these memoirs? It's sometime after the whole controversy. I think it was in the 1950s. Right. He's remembering that decades later. Yes, yes, and yes. And there's yes. no there's no other written confirmation of that anywhere that we know of, is that right? No. No. A quiet word from the chief whip. Suitably dramatic, but the memoir gives no reason why Lloyd George would want the film suppressed. Professor Street also thought it might be more complicated and possibly more sinister than the Rosen's account would suggest. There's whole complexities about even whether you, you sort of have to take at face value what is written in the memoir. It could be a more of a hidden hand thing. Home Office is also nervous about the film, perhaps putting pressure on Lloyd George. More talk of a hidden hand, dark forces at work. Was there a movie villain lurking somewhere in the background? It seemed there might be. Professor Street mentioned an article which appeared in John Bull magazine when the film was being produced. That attacked the ideal film company, saying that it had no right to produce uh, a film about Lloyd George, a monumental political figure in British history, because the Rosens were of German-Jewish origin. Hmm, now I was getting somewhere. John Bull was published by a man called Horatio Bottomley. I needed to know more about this potential villain of the piece. I turned to Matthew Sweet, author of Shepherd and Babylon, The Lost Worlds of British Cinema, and according to Matthew, Bottomley was straight out of central casting. Horatio Bottomley, a notorious fraudster, one of the great con men of the age, went on the attack on the grounds that this film wasn't sufficiently anti-German, in fact, may have been kind of infiltrated in some way by German or Jewish interests. Bottomley's an incredibly xenophobic figure. His anti-German virulence was legendary. I mean, he would have editorials that seriously said things like, if you have a foreign waiter when you go to a restaurant, do spit at them. <laughs> um, and what he does, I mean, his attack is essentially an anti-Semitic one. He draws attention to the fact that the Rosens used to be called the Rosenbaums and that they, uh, they changed their names during the war. I mean, you can see from their the paperwork of the company, how swiftly this process happens. Look, here is here's a company ledger from 1914. There, there... Oh, yes. Harry Rosenbaum, Esther Rosenbaum, Coppel. And pretty soon, they're Rosens. But that's 1914. Yes. But he also accuses them... He gets hold of an extra, a man from Catford, who says that he was an extra on the film... And this man claims that there were German actors on the set dressed in British military uniforms. The implication is that somehow this film has German fingerprints on it. Yes. That somehow there are going to be pro-German attitudes embodied in this film. The connection between Bottomley and the money seems interesting. Yeah. 
The mysterious benefactor is the part of this that puzzles me. Where did this money come from? Where did this £20,000 come from? There's an implication that it may have come from the Liberal Party itself. I think that it's not unreasonable to suggest that the Liberal Party funded this film themselves and when Lloyd George got cold feet about it, and they possibly too got cold feet about it, they decided to write it off, pay the Rosens their money back so that all the accounts clicked back to zero. It was a compelling prospect, was bottomly in the frame. Well, the film is not remotely pro-German. Would Lloyd George, a willing extra himself, really have been cowed by Bottomley's scurrilous article? I don't think he would have minded at all. Uh, he'd had a lot of trouble with newspapers in his youth. He'd often sued newspapers for libel, on some occasions when they were telling the truth, but he always won. So I don't think he would care to damn. And nor was Lord Hattersley convinced by the idea that Liberals had first bankrolled the film and subsequently paid for its suppression a total of 40 grand's worth of cold feet. I find it inconceivable that the Liberal Party would have paid to suppress it. The Liberal Party is hard up, it's on its knees, it doesn't know what it's about, it doesn't see itself having very much future. I mean, this is the end of the Liberal Party as it was at that time. The Liberal Party is on the sidelines from 1918 onwards till two years ago. But just as I was worrying that a big caption marked The End was about to appear on my investigation, I was granted an appointment at the House of Lords. I had secured a meeting with a very important witness. And you see, this is the great echoing lobby. If you just follow me down here, uh, we've got a room where we can talk about these matters uninterruptedly. Lloyd George's grandson, go. Lord just Tenby, start had agreed to speak to me. What light could he shed on this movie mystery? Shall I lead the way? I said yes, not being familiar with the upper chamber of the Palace of Westminster, yet. Here we are. I hope this will uh, suit your purposes. They're so polite, these peers. Yes, where shall I sit? Why don't you sit at the head of the table? Lord Tenby was, of course, the person who discovered those big tins in the first place. Did you know, were you aware at that time, that a film of Lloyd George's life had been made at all? No. I can say that emphatically. And I'm not even, strangely enough, I'm not even sure my father knew. When I was a young boy, and still at school, I mean, I used to go to, this is in the war, I used to go to stay at Bronaday, my grandfather's house in Surrey, if I was on holiday, and my father was in the government then, and if he and my mother were there, then I would go there as well. So I went there quite a lot in the early stages of the war up to about 1944 and I never remember this film ever being mentioned and it wasn't as if he didn't like films or anything like that I never remembered my father mentioning it never remember anybody in my family mentioning it now that's strange if you're sitting on the only copy of a film that was about to be produced issued in 1918 what 30 years later, mm. or less, 25 years later, that nobody ever mentions it. Yes. It's very mysterious. And Lord Tenby did have some ideas about who might have been the hidden hand behind suppression. I'm rather tempted by the idea that Francis Stevenson, who was to become the second Lady Lloyd George, didn't think much of it, perhaps. 
I mean, this is absolute speculation. Mm. And, um, you know, said, oh, well, that doesn't do you any favours. But, I mean, I, I can't believe that she... I don't know why she would have done that. It's only a theory, and it's not meant to be a... I'm just trying to make sense of it. As was I. This was another turn in the plot. Lloyd George had something of a complicated private life, to say the least. His long-standing mistress, Frances Stevenson, is portrayed in the film, glimpsed briefly in her legitimate role as his secretary. But did she play a key part in the film's disappearance? I urgently needed to find someone who knew all about her. Frances wrote a diary from 1914 until her death in 1972, so it's a long document, but I've brought along some of the relevant parts, particularly her diary for 1920. Fionn Haig is author of The Pain and the Privilege, The Women in Lloyd George's Life. Would Frances Stevenson's diary yield up the secrets behind the film's disappearance? She says on February 24th, 1920, that she'd been to a, a screening of the film in number 12. Freddie Guest, the then Chief Whip, had screened a film of Lloyd George's life. And as far as we know, it is the same film. And she says, it was a perfectly appalling thing. She objects strongly to the characterization of Lloyd George in the film. The idea was all right, she says, but the man who was supposed to be D, David, uh, Lloyd George, was simply a caricature. And she says, I begged D not to let it be shown. So that's quite strong evidence that, that Francis did intervene and ask for the film not to be shown again. Yes. How much sway would that uh, opinion have held with Lloyd George himself, do you think? Oh, a lot. Francis had a lot of influence uh, over him. And uh, she goes on to say, Mrs Lloyd George, very angry with Dee, because she said, I had put Dee against it, because I objected to the domestic scenes in it. And that is fascinating, because it's a very rare instance of Margaret Lloyd George betraying any knowledge or awareness of Francis's influence over Lloyd George. The only trouble was, that diary entry was for 1920, by which time Lloyd George was embroiled in political problems. This puts it just a bit more than a year later than the film's disappearance, which means that having been taken away by cash-wielding lawyers, a copy of the film is now, somehow, in possession of the government chief whip. And Fionn had a rather compelling theory. It's entirely possible, I think, we have no evidence for this, but it's entirely possible that they were reconsidering launching the film in the face of Lloyd George's political um, difficulties to remind the population, as it were, that he was the man who won the war and yeah. of this extraordinary backstory to his career. It's difficult to tell from the diary if Francis was seeing the film for the first time. Had Lloyd George taken the decision alone before the election of 1918 and then brought in Francis for a second opinion when things got tough a year later? Fionn thought it not inconceivable that Francis's view might have been decisive first time round too. There was a real possibility, I suppose, that such a propaganda film would form a backlash against them. So I think if you can put yourself into the mind of Frances at that time, advising Lloyd George on how best to play the election, she would have been against taking such a big risk when there was no need. Lloyd George was a national hero, the man who won the war. Two years later, in 1920, things looked very different. The coalition was crumbling. And so um, perhaps Francis would have been more minded to consider advising that the film should be released. But what, what is interesting is that she strongly implies in the diary entry that it is Lloyd George's decision. Yes. I begged Dee not to let it be shown. So he had some kind of veto over it. Yes. And if he had it in 1920, he would have had it in 1918. 
cinema was still new, its impact on voters uncertain. Lloyd George and Francis Stevenson must have feared the effect of this groundbreaking biopic. Behind the anonymity of cash in hand, the film was withdrawn. The source of the cash remains unknown, but just over a year later, the same film was being privately viewed in Downing Street and considered for release again, this time to revive its protagonist's flagging political fortunes. 20,000 in today's money is a million pounds. That's a lot of cash to protect the political fortunes of the Prime Minister of the day. If that had emerged at the time, what sort of scandal would it have caused? I'm glad I've discovered this now. If I'd been onto it at the time, I fear I might not have made it to the final reel. Punt P.I. was produced by Lawrence Grizel. Tracy was played by Jared McDermott. And next week, Steve's assignment takes him back to Roman times and the mystery of the Battle of Watling Street. After the news, George Parker of the Financial Times goes behind the scenes of Parliament as MPs set out their stalls for the party conference season. The week in Westminster is in a couple of minutes. But first, to tomorrow morning, who's our new castaway going to be? One of the most coveted chairs on BBC Radio 4 returns this weekend. Oh, no. uh, what button do you... It's the one on the right-hand side as you sit on it, apparently. And proves to be rather a challenge for the first castaway. That, that's it. Is that it? Yes. Are you all right? Yes, it's my first time with a chair. <laughs> Martin Clunes joins Kirsty Young to pick his Desert Island Discs. Nice, okay. Deep breath. Tomorrow morning at 11.15. <laughs>